All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by Maverick Protocol, a suite of liquidity tools built around an innovative AMM. Maverick helps token projects, DAO treasuries, LPs, or basically anyone in DeFi shape their liquidity with efficiency and flexibility. How, you might ask? Stick around and you're going to be hearing about them more later. Now, on with the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another Bell Curve Roundup. You got Michaels 1 and 2 and Miles, our sixth man standing in. Fellas, welcome. It's really just the third man because it's really just about exactly. the Michaels I here. I know, but with any sports reference, I don't want to change too much because I don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> Play it safe. Play it safe. You had that one written out beforehand, Mike? Yeah, I'm like looking at my hand. Sixth that's, man. That's, that's his go-to. <laughs> just stick with it. All right, we got we actually got a bunch of stuff to cover this week, so why don't we just get right into it? I maybe a a bit of a feel good story here would be uh, maybe feel good's not the right word, but Coinbase has gotten regulatory approval to enable retail's perpetuals future trading. So just the the history, I mean, most of us think about Coinbase as being the the entity that's domiciled here in the U.S. publicly listed company. In May of this year, they launched Coinbase International, which is an international entity which um yeah they basically moved offshore and they allowed institutional traders uh to trade via api so they started with btc and eth perps um that are settled in usdc uh today um and that's going to be for retail traders coming later this year so um it's pretty interesting coinbase is making moves this is just the latest in a series of data points which is companies that are based out of the US but trying to capitalize on international demand. So this past this past quarter just again on the institutional segment, Coinbase International did over just around 5 and a half billion in terms of volume. So that's not an enormous amount compared to the rest of their business, but that's not nothing either, especially in their first quarter that's pretty impressive. So I mean, yeah, what do you guys what do you guys think about this? I think even further, it kind of highlights the differences between what U.S. customers are uh, allowed to do and what non-U.S. customers are allowed to do. Um, obviously, this is a non-U.S. product. Um, but if we look at it and just looking at CoinGlass, <clears throat> the last 24 hours, there was almost $75 billion in perps volume. And obviously, most of that, or uh, I would probably say 70, 80% just looking at the charts is, is maybe, maybe a little 60, 50, 60% is Binance. <clears throat> so at the same time, when you have, at least at this point, kind of rumors of action against Binance or, or, you know, some sort of um, process there, you've got Coinbase making moves. Um, and we saw this with institutions. Uh, yeah, May, I think, or June. Um, it'll be really interesting, interesting to see the interest uh, from the retail side as well. So I, I think very exciting overall. Um, it'll become a, an interesting data point to watch over the next few months. I would just add, you know, I think Coinbase has struggled with this challenge of trying to keep up with the pace of their competitors. Um, you know, if you think about like the asset listings, that took a long time for them to come around on kind of opening that up. And I could see this just kind of being the blueprint for more products where they don't 
feel that comfortable in the US, but you can, you know, basically test it out, get it used and battle tested in, you know, with international customers and then kind of use that as supporting evidence, you know, when you try to get this approved in the US. Um, say this has been working for a very long time, right? Um, so yeah, I think it, I think it's interesting and definitely the timing of it couldn't be better with some of these, you know, incumbents. I would say like, <laughs> We don't really know what's going on, but sentiment is definitely a little shaky on them. Um, but yeah, it will be very interesting to, to see where they're able to get adoption. Kind of interesting point. Anybody who's been in crypto the last three, four years knows this, but just the product differences between a perpetual future versus an option. Um, and obviously retail, you know, we, I think the movie comes out like literally tomorrow, dumb money. Um, you know, you've got retail options being a uh, flavor du jour product for retail uh, equities traders. It, it's going to be interesting to see if any of that ever carries over into equities markets, but it seems like perps, at least for the time being, until you have a strong enough product capability to enable real options, it, it, perps is going to be the, the product of favor for crypto. And I think that's another point of recognition for Coinbase, you know, doubling down into retail futures, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. Well, have you, I don't know how much you've looked into zero day till expiry options, but isn't that pretty similar to perps? And I, I think it's kind of the same thing, right? Like there, there's sort of a funny path dependency or here in terms of like options became the instrument du jour for retail day traders and speculators. But let's be honest, like options are a much more complicated product than something like a perpetual where, you know, there's like the, there's, you know, you could, I actually, I remember listening to an interview with Jim O'Shaughnessy, you know, father of Patrick of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. He was like, I'm old enough uh, to remember when options were used for hedging. And that's, that's why you had them to, to start with. But they, what they've morphed into is this vehicle for speculation, just because the dynamic of you put up a certain amount of premium, there's leverage embedded in the products. They're really good for gambling too, but maybe perpetuals are just a much simpler uh, product. And especially in crypto where you want to concentrate liquidity. Yeah, it's. I think it's tough to see a world in the in the short to even midterm where options, you know, take off that much. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's leverage. Yeah, it's implied right. leverage. Right. <clears throat> and I, the first the first products that I ever, I guess you could call it traded. I, the first products that I ever bought were long dated options on tech companies in college, and that was because you know if you did some basic math, you just had to kick out the Etsbury for two years. And you said, okay, well, <clears throat> I've got enough coverage here for the next year and a half before they actually expire. And it's kind of an implied like three to five X leverage. And what better way to do that when your capital base is small, <laughs> like a you know college kid. <clears throat> um, but I, I think it, you're, you're going to see perps become you know that same desired product. I agree. I think another, I think especially like, Maybe to maybe to add a little bit of nuance, it probably makes sense at some point for there to be an options market for the majors like Bitcoin or Ether. But I think when you start to talk about options for shit coins, that's where it really doesn't make that much sense to me because the investment profile of a <laughs> let's call it what it is, an illiquid shit coin is already kind of like an option. So it's kind of like a dress on a dress type thing. I, I just don't think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I don't know. hundred X on hundred X is a lot. <laughs> Do that math. <laughs> like, 10,000. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing the dumb money movie. I it's interesting. It could have gone either way. 
in, in terms of the narrative. And it seems like based on what I've seen in terms of the trailer is that the narrative is the sort of marauding evil slash weirdly incompetent at the same time Wall Street guys get their lunch eaten by this clever retail trader, you know, uh, clever internet sleuth guy who you want to identify with beat a rig game is the narrative they went with and it could have gone the other way too i think one of the narratives is community wins hey everyone wanted to take a quick second to shout out this season's partner maverick protocol now many of you probably know maverick as an innovative amm which they are but in reality they're a lot more than that as well maverick is a suite of tools for DeFi users and builders that allows them to put liquidity where it will get the most work done since maverick launched in march they have been gobbling up market share and at the time of this recording, which is the end of September, on a trailing seven-day volume basis, Maverick is now a top three DEX by volume, and they support over 50% of the volume on the L2 ZK Sync era chain. Maverick enables LPs and token pairs to process higher volume with limited TVL, which allows them to support some of the highest levels of capital efficiency for LSTs like Rapsteeth. Another very cool feature is something called Maverick Boosted Positions. So that allows protocols looking to bootstrap their token liquidity to target the shape of liquidity of any token pair with surgical precision. Maverick is backed by some of the leading institutions in crypto, Founders Fund, Pantera, Coinbase Ventures, Finance Lab. They are all backing Maverick in their vision to revolutionize the next generation of DeFi dApps and helping them build their liquidity in all market conditions. Click the link at the bottom of this episode, let them know that I sent you. Thanks, guys. What do you guys make of... There was there was an article in the Wall Street Journal this week about Binance melting down, and um and Huobi. You know, there's been some there's been a speculation about Huobi for a very long time. Adam Cochran wrote a, a big big tweet thread about how he doesn't think they're solvent anymore. To be honest, yeah, we've been hearing these rumors for a while. My baseline assumption is that a lot of these exchanges aren't always 100% above board if we're just being totally honest. So it wouldn't surprise me, but I don't know how to diligence that that risk anymore. In in terms of the, the or handicap that risk rather, I, I think in terms of the media, I actually was talking to a someone who's been in marketing comms for a long time, both in web two, finance and crypto. And she expressed this, this sentiment, which is, you know, it, the only coverage that is hitting in mainstream media right now is negative stuff because that's the only thing that's getting the headlines. And even a lot of the really good reporters who work in mainstream media, they also have editors, right? And your editor might not be bought in. So we're, we're at the, we're at the, the point in the cycle where the only stuff that is making it through the editorial sort of uh, headwall of mainstream press is just roundly negative stuff. So on the one hand, could there be something to this Binance news? Absolutely. On the other hand, could it be kind of this quirk of media? I think it could also be that. Um, I don't know if you guys have any more thoughts or insights there. Yeah, I mean, it also it depends. Let's say like this goes from beyond speculation, and maybe we start seeing like actual like withdrawals or like let's just imagine customers really really care about this, you know, full sol solvency thing. I think you know that. They've got two new options, or at least like well, at least one new option in Coinbase, and then DYDX. You know, like that launch is going to be interesting as well, right? Um, and at least Coinbase, like you can trust that they're solvent. DYDX, you don't have to trust anybody. Um, you can hold your own, right? So we could, if that actually turns out to be like you know something customers really care about, then we'll see 
I think these market share numbers change over the next six to 12 months. Um, it typically hasn't been something that customers care about until it's almost too late, unfortunately. Um, so it's not something I necessarily like ex ex I'm expecting in, in the near term, but I think it's not, you know, outside of the realm of possibility. No comments on specific exchanges or their solvency. I think there's just this tendency to, you know, left of the bell curve it and say, looks like FTX, therefore it should be similar. And I think moving past that narrative will be important. Um, I mean, just looking at it right now, uh, Bitcoin and ETH, number three, number four, and number five is the CME. So you also have an option uh, from a from a perpetuals exchange that's obviously regulated, highly regulated in the US to be able to trade on the CME, but it's still at $3 billion for Bitcoin and Binance yesterday was 13. So, you know, those options do exist. I think there's there's definitely just kind of like an interest. There's an interest to be able to trade in a safe manner, obviously, and trust your counterparty. Um, but I think there's also just a, 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 an effect of all your assets are on Binance. And, and maybe, you know, most people don't trade the long tail of assets other than Bitcoin and ETH. But, you know, if you've got assets there, that becomes your cross margin capability to be able to go off and trade perpetuals. And you could have that cross margin and in, in that collateral be based in something that's not US dollar denominated, you know, it could be in any of the long tail assets. So I think there's an element of the the product is really good. Um, and, and I think that's not really changing anytime soon. You know, maybe some of the smoke becomes fire from all the rumors that we've all heard. But uh, I'm, I don't know. No, it is super interesting where I think like product capabilities have been prioritized over trust in this market. Um, but in all other traditional markets, you know, like I spent the first six and a half years of my career at Fidelity and all we did is sell trust, right? Like we did not push the envelope on products. You could, you could, we absolutely could have many times, right? But I think that that's when, you know, it's maybe like going after a slightly different sort of market that has different preferences that, that do value like trust above all. Um, and we know that that's likely going to be like the larger long-term market. Uh, anyways, maybe we're also talking about two different markets, you know, people who don't, who value product capabilities right now. And, and maybe we've seen that, that top or, or the relative size of that, but the lar much, much larger, you know, there was something that he was talking about at the D DTCC and they, they settled, uh, four quadrillion dollars worth of value last year. Um, you know, like we're talking about markets that are just orders of magnitude larger, ultimately. Yeah, I agree with you. What do you think about, I, I saw Ari Paul actually do a tweet thread this week about sort of expressing with, with more detail, a theory that I've heard bandied about in crypto, which is basically there's going to be, I'm paraphrasing here. So if I get some stuff exactly wrong, but there are going to be two markets for crypto. You could get a, a scenario where crypto is bifurcated into a more regulated and a more permissionless market. And, you know, we've heard about this a lot, I think, in the past where there's sort of a called KYC Fi, you know, there are attempts at KYC L2s, to be honest, is probably an opportunity for base to do some amount of uh, KYC or proof of personhood or whatever, so that you can avoid, um, you know, sibling and that type of thing. But and then there's going to be a more open permissionless sort of casino Wild West portion of crypto. What, what, what do you guys think about that cleaving of those two worlds? Or do we end up more with a more generic compromise. I'm, I'm going to split it right down the middle and say, I, my vision for how 
ultimately a lot of this stuff will will end up working is you're never going to be able to get you know a permissionless protocol to abide by all the different rules and regulations for every single country around the world and and you know it's not just the us there's now going to be you know mica in the eu there's going to be regulations in singapore japan korea i mean everybody's coming out with their own flavor of all of this and i think you're going to see not the separation horizontally you're going to see the separation vertically and it's not going to be something where you know you've got permissioned and permissionless it's you've got permissionless protocols which have you know capabilities and features and controls in place and then you've got user experiences or applications that have the customer relationship that then access the protocols. And I think that delineation probably makes more sense. I mean, obviously this would, I think part of this would also require regulatory changes where you, everybody starts to agree, Hey, if you're not accessing this directly and it's a interface that owns the customer relationship that owns the customer, therefore the KYC AML, and then the protocols are permissionless. I don't know if that is totally clear with most regulators right now, but I, ultimately, I think that's where we're heading. So I, I would kind of flip it around 90 degrees. Michael, I largely agree with you. Um, and I think it's super interesting to think about, you know, how, are, what sort of there's going to be a range of these requirements um, and which ones can you satisfy, you know, at that front end level or like outside of the protocol itself. Right. And something that you know, we were thinking about is with, with Micah, like one of those requirements that's non-obvious is having like emergency response action uh, processes in place if there's ever something wrong. And that's fundamentally not something you could do at the UI level, right? Like if they're in that world, you could, you could make the argument that to be compliant, like a protocol needs to be able to have circuit breakers if there is ever an exploit going on or something like that. And that that is where I think like, you know, it's a little bit less obvious how we're going to navigate that um, and where you could see just like splits maybe um, when it actually has to touch the protocol. But I think things like KYC and all that stuff, like I, I totally agree, that can be layered on. Um, and there could be two very different, you know, types of experiences while interacting in the protocols kind of like the back end. And it's also possible you've got UIs that don't do KYC and those are just permissionless UIs and, and they're accessing the protocol as well. Um, but that's an interesting point on, on having the emergency response circuit breaker. Um, I, I would imagine, you know, that's where like regulate regulatory, uh, um, confines meet permissionless protocols. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. No, I think, I think there will be really cool solutions that come out, you know, specifically to address these, uh, challenges because, you know, otherwise, you know, we don't really get to the best version of this. I tend to agree with that. That's probably a. Yeah, there, there is a part of me whenever we talk about this and there's, I think this conversation is being had a little bit around the intense uh, part of crypto right now. But what, what I think people are coming to the conclusion is that these navigating this is extremely, navigating being on chain is very difficult. M most people will not like navigate and directly interface with a bunch of these protocols. So instead we're going to re-architect this where, uh, third parties on your behalf interface with protocols for you. And a, a little part of me is like, man, that makes so much sense because <laughs> I mean, A, just look at the security concerns of being on chain. B, it's already too complicated. Even for someone like me who spends a lot of time doing stuff like this, it's, it's, it's very difficult. It's not a good user experience that I feel nervous when I'm doing it most of the time. But on the other hand, as, you know, as soon as you start to reintroduce uh, third parties who act on your behalf and 
I, I, one thing I've always, you know, you hear this a lot, which is as long as the back end is decentralized, that's the important thing. And a little voice in the back of my head has always been like, yeah, but if everything is built around the front end and, you know, at some point it becomes too difficult or technical to interface with the back end, like what's the major difference there? For certain people, they're going to really want that. They want the handholding. They're going to want to be able to call someone. They're going to want to, you know, know that every that all all of their money and all the value that they have in their wallet is is you know staying put uh and for other people who may be more crypto native it'll be more like hey i just need a a clean ui to be able to access this with my non-custodial wallet like it's going to be all and this is also kind of the point there's going to be rules and regulations for geographies and we can't get around that but i also think there's going to be different flavors of all the different types of interfaces that people will want there'll be something kind of for everybody. Let's move on to our next story here. Maybe Miles, I can pick on you. You just wrote a great, very timely, as it turns out, post on Reverie about this, what I would sort of call the the RAS landscape and the the interaction that Rollup as a service has with their frameworks and then also shared sequencing. So um, I, I'd like to poke at you to just describe sort of why you wrote that post and what the post says. And then also Andrew Huang, the, the founder at Conduit, uh, released something yet yeah, two days ago. So on Tuesday, um, which is the conduit elector, which is a new standard for sequencers, which kind of opens up the door to the possibility of shared sequencing in the future. But can you just start by just giving us an overview of how you see yeah. roll up as a service um, and sort of the the tendency to vertical or the incentives yeah. to vertically yeah, integrate. Yeah, totally. Like, I'll space. just give a little bit of context of why this is super interesting to me. I mean, we are very active on the Cosmos side. And so we've been thinking about like the benefits of what you get with an app chain, but we also have seen like really all the pain points. Um, and in particular, the fact that, you know, despite everything you can do, there are very few teams like with the competence and the desire to operate all the backend infrastructure of a chain. Um, and there are very few teams that actually know how to harness that infrastructure for like the application itself. Um, that said, you know, the benefits clearly resonate with, with developers. Um, and so we now have app chains on Ethereum that have basically created, um, you know, a combination of these app chain frameworks and roll up as a service providers have created a much lighter weight way to get in your app chain, like to, into prod. Um, you don't need to have, you know, like chain experts on your team in order to stand up your roll up anymore. You don't need to have DevOps, you know, which are resources that are taking away from time spent or capital invested into the core product and, you know, growing the user base, right? So these are, you know, like in, in general, I just don't think the majority of future application teams are going to be experts on, you know, roll up frameworks. I think they're going to, I see a future where, they love this idea. They love having the control, the value capture, like the customization, but they're going to want some help. Um, and so you go to a rollup as a service provider. This rollup as a service provider initially is like an IT consultant telling you, okay, here are the, you know, the, the stack that I think best fits your use case. Uh, here are all of the third-party integrations that would bring like basically the user experience and the developer experience to parity with you know, if you were building on a big L1, right? Um, and we're going to make sure like a lot of what we're selling you as well is reliability, right? We're going to make sure that your rollup does not go down, you know, 
as you grow from zero users to a thousand to ten thousand to a hundred thousand, right? Um, and we've seen a lot of rollups go down, frankly. Um, so this is like it's a very web two sort of uh, approach to solving this, which is always like very resonated with me a lot. Um, like let the developers, you know, work on what they're good at, which is building products and growing user bases. We'll handle everything else that's undifferentiated. Um, but it also puts these RAS providers, you know, in um, in a in a position, really, I would say, like desirable position of the sequencer operators. Um, and so, I guess part of what I wrote the piece about is, you know, if you were a roll-up framework, you know, ideally you'd want your own RAS provider because this is kind of a way to monetize your framework in a without putting any burden through like revenue shares or licensing fees, you know, for like that probably act as a like and you know basically impedes adoption um and so i just think it's a really interesting dynamic between all these different stakeholders and then of course shared sequencers come in um so what conduit put out earlier this week is definitely it's i want to be clear here it's not saying that conduit is putting out a shared sequencer um it is more saying here we've got this basically a consensus a rotating consensus of sequencers that we operate um, and this ensures that if one goes down, it immediately, you know, goes to the next, like within the set, we can increase your uptime and, you know, reliability relative to if you're running this yourself, um, or even if you are, you know, hired a different RAS provider, who's just running one sequencer for you. Uh, that said, it does, you know, open up the possibility that RAS providers could, you know, break into a shared sequencer market. Cause all they have to do is say, you know, here's our like rotating consensus today. It's just us, but we'll actually like open this up to, to third parties. Um, and so you can see how, like, I think RAS has, you know, planted itself in kind of like backend infrastructure services and consulting, but it can quickly expand into like shared sequencers if it wants to. Um, I think shared sequencers are trying to go like the other way around. And I think they will try to expand into, you know, different sort of infrastructure services or maybe integration, you know, uh, services. So I think all of like the frameworks, the RAS providers and the shared sequencers, I think, you know, they're, they're on relatively friendly terms today, but like we're in the we're starting to see the early signs of how these are, you know, inevitably going to compete for, for value capture. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's a, a brief overview. I can, I can, we can post the, uh, my, my piece of content in the show notes here as a self shell. One question I mean, we talk about internally, but also I've been thinking a lot about is like at the steady state or the, maybe not the terminal state, but like steady state, how many rollups do you think they're going to be? I think that is at the core of what we're talking about here. My general uh, view on this is that the incentives to own more of the stack becomes stronger as you grow. I would say when you're first launching a project, the incentives are like, like really point towards launching on a general purpose chain because like the benefits you get are at their like absolute lowest point when you have zero users and the trade-offs are at their highest point. You know, you are, you're doing a lot of work basically to own your own block space. Um, that said, so I'm not super bullish on there being like an immediately a huge long tail of app specific rollups. Um, that said, I think it's, you could see this sort of like pyramid here where you have these layer one, you know, like launch pads, or maybe it's general purpose L2s. And then 
you know, as projects grow, if they, they have the leverage to take their users with them, um, they will. And I think a lot of this also kind of depends on breaking some trade-offs that currently exist around interoperability. And, um, if you can do that, then this path be like, maybe it opens up a longer tail, um, as well, as well. But yeah, Mike and I have been kind of going back and forth on that same question ourselves this week. Um, you know, Eclipse is kind of like the opposite, right? Eclipse is now saying like, Hey, uh, we were doing these app specific rollups for a long time. Um, you know, honestly, we've, we've talked to customers out there and we think we can get the 80% of the benefits that matter by having like local fee markets and parallelization. The problem is not, you know, the fact that you need your own block space. The problem is these single threaded EVM chains. If you can just get away from that, then, you know, you don't like need your own blockchain necessarily. Um, yeah, so I think that there is a difference in like this equation if we're talking about EVM versus S SVM and um, as also obviously like what size you are. I, I don't know. I've waffled a little bit on this. I, I feel like probably the, I don't know about ultimate end state. I don't know about 20 years. I just think that's, I'd be making stuff up. I, but like, let's just say five, like foreseeable sort of future five year time frame. I feel like it depends on depends on how effective upgrades like dang sharding are. A lot of it's going to come down to cost. A lot of it's going to come down to how comfortable the market becomes with outsourcing DA to solutions like Celestia or Avail or whatever. But even with that, I would guess it's somewhere between two and four big rollups. Roll up roll up frameworks or right? like. Okay. Roll up frameworks, but then within, the, frameworks. within those frameworks, yeah. like how much of the activity is centered on their general purpose platform chain versus spread across a roll app? Uh, I think I actually think there's going to be a diversity of different business models there. Uh, I, I've recently gone a little. My mental framework has shifted a little bit. I did. I was very. I at one point I thought everyone was going to copy the OP stack, and that was clearly going to be the the way to go. And now I'm less convinced about that. And partially it is the the local fee markets of the SVM. And and frankly, like you could, I mean, even Monad, a team like Monad, they're, they're re-architecting the EVM. And I think there's going to be a way that we can figure out the, the noisy neighbor problem with local fee markets. And you trade off some amount of uh, customizability. Like the big thing that you're giving on the table, that's obvious, like you can't decide your own block time, for instance. Um, but you get composability. And it's going to really depend on your application. But I think I think multiple different models will flourish there. I don't think it has to be like one or the other. Miles, you and I were looking at, there's actually a really great, even between something like Arbitrum and Optimism, uh, Stephen Goldfeder, I believe it was, tweeted something. We'll, we'll link it in the show notes. It was a really good breakdown of the different approach uh, between Arbitrum and Optimism. And he actually used the analogy of amusement parks and a part of this hinges on licensing, but basically there are two models of amusement park. One would be a six flag model where you are Disney, where you pay a lot to get in once, but then everything inside is free. And then there are other models where it's free entrance, but you have to pay for every single thing like Coney Island. And so Arbitrum would be approaching something that's like the first model where you have to pay a licensing fee, but then you can kind of create your own L2 and you can use the open source code. That's how they're getting value accrual. By the way, you can still do an L3 that settles through orbit 
um, and that would be completely free. But if you want to do an L2, like you'd be like for like what Base did with the OP stack, you have to you have to pay a licensing fee. And Optimism, on the other hand, has approached the Coney Island sort of measure where hey, like it's free, come on in, use the OP stack. But if you want to ride the law of chains and get you know ninety percent of the benefit to being in this you know distribution or easy integrations or whatever it is, then you have to pay. And, and they're just very different models. And I guess we'll I guess we'll see. But I, I sort of feel like there's room for for all of these. Um, but what I don't see is a world of like 10 general purpose frameworks, uh, you know, with multiple, there's probably one or two, there might be a, a very dominant model, or you could maybe see like three or four frameworks and they have different models and maybe one's a little bit better than the other, but they all sort of work. But that's what I would guess. Yep. I mean, I asked a question, but I don't have an answer. Uh, no. I don't think anybody does, <laughs> yeah. but uh, one way that I think about it is um, based off of application category. Yeah. And, you know, if you really break it down, it's basically like two variables. It's user experience and technology. Now, user experience is going to be everything from, you know, the cost to the end user to like where are your assets. So like if it's, you know, it, if you're launching an NFT, it probably makes the most sense to have it on ETH mainnet just because that's where the hot ball of money at least was for NFTs. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, games are going to have to abstract away the blockchain as much as possible. And that's really, you know, the user experience is going to have to be abstracted that, and, and therefore technology becomes kind of the driving point. How many users, how many concurrent players, how much, how much, you know, throughput can you put through a chain is kind of the variable that at least when we talk to games, that's what they care about. DeFi or or financial services on the flip side is going to be something that cares more about where is the money and how do we protect it, and so security becomes you know the the core variable as well as user experience because if you're building a DeFi app, you want to go where people yeah. already are transacting. So I I kind of think about it in terms of application categories, but I agree it's going to be you know multiple it's players. Totally fair. It's a, the distribution piece plays into the, the strategy, right? And, and the relative trade-offs. Um, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I am interested to hear, like, to see where some use cases that we don't see as, like, um, that aren't, I guess, as mature today, like payments. You know, does does Visa, like, end up needing its own roll-up? Um, if so, like, I would imagine yes, right? Or, like, maybe its own chain, right? Um, and I'd like, I think it is interesting to kind of look at uh, maybe base um, versus noble, which is the you know uh, USDC powered chain over in Cosmos, and the decisions there. I mean, base is basically a general purpose as possible and permissionless, right? Which allows Coinbase to kind of overlay trusted services that you can charge for. Um, whereas noble wanted that control at the chain level and wanted to control, like basically maximize control, right? They they can't have like, you know, USDC being minted and sent to blacklisted addresses and things like that. Right. So I can, I can see kind of from an enterprise standpoint, like two sort of, you know, approaches there as well. Um, I'm not sure where they'll, they'll play out, but I, I want to say that most will care about control more so than like trying to overlay a trust, you know, trusted product on a permissionless network. Yeah. And, and that's kind of how I think about technology or the variable of technology. It really comes down to like, what is the transaction throughput and, and what is the security model? And like within that, 
you know, you can basically define, you know, whether or not you need your own roll app, whether or not your general purpose roll app or ever, or if you need your own chain. Yeah, I agree with that. And it'll be interesting to see as well. You know, Ben Jones talked about this at Permissionless this year, but the bet on more homogenous block space that like an OP law of chains bundle is making versus the uh, the Cosmos completely sovereign app chain. And frankly, like we're all just we're all just guessing. You know, a lot of people would come down with a very strong opinion, like this is what blockchains need. Like we gotta wait for the apps to to see what they actually need. I think it's a lot of guesswork. And the same thing happened also. I mean, the the reason why I asked the question is because I, I don't know how I got down this rabbit hole, but I was looking at ServiceNow, uh, who went public in like March of 2012. Mm. They went public, by the way, with 119 million in revenue in their last 12 months, and then are now a hundred and eleven billion dollar company. And really, like the the thought process there, yeah, staggering over the last decade. Wow. Go look at their stock chart. It's pretty fun. Um, the the kind of the thread line here is back then a lot of what the narrative was was essentially is SaaS real for all businesses or is it real for some businesses and would you ever get rid of your it department would you ever get rid of your mainframe computers would you ever become cloud dominant and be based in the cloud and i think obviously we know how that story plays but you know that's kind of the same question here it's like what is the infrastructure servicing going to need to be for these different applications over the next five, 10 years? We don't know, but you know, it, it's going to come in different flavors and maybe you do need that full IT department and the mainframe in the basement. The reason why I found this, this announcement from Conduit interesting, I, I now it's, I can't even remember. It was an invest like the best podcast. I heard it a while ago, but they were describing the competitive dynamics within tech and the quote that I'm paraphrasing was sometimes like the biggest competition is not actually horizontally competing across categories, but it's within the same stack competing for margin. And I think that you're starting to see that play out with the framework roll up as a service and shared sequencer. And the roll up as a service is interesting. It, it, I think it's anyone's game at this point, but the strategy I would guess from Conduit's point of view with absolutely no insight really, other than what I've just podcasts and stuff I've listened to is you le- you use infrastructure services as a little bit of a loss leader, get your foot in the door. Now you have something that looks like a more robust, you know, I, I bet the internal sales pitches for this, this, uh, you know, leader election mechanism is increase your uptime, right? That's probably a killer pain point metric for these rollups. And then it's like, Hey, well, we're already running this thing for you. I mean, we should really just seek, share the sequence here. And by the way, we have viewpoints into all these different mempools we know how to extract MEV better. You know, we, we have like best in class because we have views into all these different mempools. So, you know, we'll charge you 15%, but, you know, with how much more efficiently we can extract it, you, you'll see a return anyway. Something like that. I mean, that, that's what I would guess would be the, the playbook from their yeah, perspective. I, I guess maybe just two reactions. Like one, I totally agree with that. And maybe another, like, I, I don't know, web two playbook has always been commoditize your complement, right? Uh, and that's, typically when you're in the same, same stack. And, um, I think, you know, that's part of the motivation for like why I've been looking at this super fun to think about these competitive dynamics. Um, and I guess, yeah, I think we'll see increased competition, uh, just over the, the next year or two. Um, there's no chance we're not going to, I think. 
Guys, I want to talk about pudgy penguins. I have been pudgy pill. I was pudgy pilled a while ago. We did a spaces with Luca Nets, David Hoffman, and I. And I got back. I was like, you know, I haven't interacted with the NFT side of the market is a little bit of a blind spot for me. There was an NF. There was an article that went live saying NFT projects ninety five percent are worthless, which probably means this is the time to start looking at NFTs again. Super reliable <laughs> indicator, but. Uh, it, it it did seem like a lot of, there was definitely it was the frothiest part of this market cycle right so there's a lot of kind of get rich quick or taking taking money and then not really executing on a, a plan but the the pudgy plan has been very interesting because a little while ago you know they you took an, an nft product and they actually started selling penguin little penguins on online and they sold I don't actually know the number. I don't know if it was originally five hundred thousand or they sold a good amount of these these penguins online and then this week you know, you come to find out that 2000 Walmarts are now going to be stocked with pudgy penguins. And the model that is emerging that makes a lot more sense to me than decentralized Disney, which never made any sense to me, is it's, it's just a it's just a traditional funnel, right? So what you have is social media at the top. Lucas talked about this. There's a great Empire episode, Jason interviewed him. But there's social media at the top. There's like a uh, medium term, which is kind of like their... Um, like what they sell through like wholesale through Amazon or or uh, Walmart. And then at the bottom of their funnel is the NFT. And part of the value accrual actually is royalties. There are royalties every time a pudgy penguin gets sold in the Walmart that get directed back to the NFTs at the bottom of the funnel. I mean, that's kind of a neat, I mean, that's a pretty simple, I can grok that. That makes a lot of sense to me. So pretty cool. It's really great to see Walmart register as a, as a licensed security exchange as well. <laughs> sorry, sorry, had to add it. Ultimately, it's awesome. I think uh, you know it, it's it's the realization. I one of the biggest things that we've thought about. I've thought about you know even back to you know the company that Vance and I started prior to um, prior to Framework was a company called Hashleets, and it was digital collectibles for professional athletes. And one of the the things that we really stressed and, and built product around was how do you bridge the digital analog divide? Like, how do you make this real? And it's a really hard thing to do from a product perspective. It's like this thing's on your phone. It feels real because you're always looking at your phone. But sports is in person. Athletes are in person. Like, how do you connect that is a really hard thing to do. Um, and I think that, you know, the brands, the NFT brands that are able to do that best are going to be obviously the most successful. But I think that's really kind of where, like, look at Disney. You just referenced it. Disney, you know, a major part of their business is theme parks. You know, everybody remembers the time that they went to Disneyland or Disney World. But that, it, it materializes something that lives on a screen. Um, so it's very exciting to see them do this. It's like probably the most, like, lucid commercial strategy I've seen from a, like, fun first, I would say culture first NFT project. Um, I think the other way to connect us to the real world is, like, what Blackbird's doing, uh, which is also super interesting on, like, the loyalty side and giving you, like, real world benefits. But Just define what, what Blackbird is. By no means an expert on the Blackbird product, but it's essentially letting restaurants either, like, crowdfund uh some bootstrapping like funding to get their restaurant off the ground um i think that's like a one use case the other that is more like the original use case was for loyalty uh points and so you know you walk into the restaurant you just like 
put up your phone, it's, it scans, it sees that you've, you know, basically come into this restaurant, it gives you that attribute on an NFT that represents like, you know, basically your profile. Um, and then you can start getting like, you know, you get a free dessert every other time you go or something like that. Right. So it's just starting to get into, I guess, you know, real world business cases and like a, a an interesting commercial business potentially. Um, and this is like the Resi founder has, this is his new project. So, you, you know, this guy has a very good understanding of the landscape. Um, but this one's super interesting too. I mean, I like have definitely had written off pudgy penguins for a while before Mike started, you know, telling me how like actually interesting the strategy is and who knows, maybe in five years, like we saw a Legos movie and we get like a pudgy penguins movie. It's like the despicables. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's going the opposite yeah. direction. That's digital. That's, that's analog to digital. <laughs> you know what Pudgy does is, have you? I don't know if you guys know Howard Lindzen, but he has this eight and eighty rule where, when you're explaining an investment, you should be able to do it to an eight year old and to an eighty year old. This passed that test with flying colors. Penguins. Everybody loves penguins. I don't know how many of our investment theses would pass that <laughs> test in the last couple of years. <laughs> So shared sequencing, Grandma. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to love it. Hold on. Um, Yeah, it's just cool. It's a little bit of a feel-good story. It's minor wins, uh, green shoots, and NFTs is a category. Obviously not financial advice. None of this ever is. But yeah, whenever there's a magazine cover that, that makes the rounds that says this thing is dead, that's usually the time to start looking at it again. So magazine cover cover indicator very tested tried and true let's talk a little bit about gary gensler so he had um there was a gensler hearing there were 40 plus crypto founders in dc talking with congress with the general sentiment being there has been pretty egregious overreach from the sec and gensler himself uh was sort of deposed by this um i i don't know what you would call it like a this group of of policymakers. And obviously, the, the Dems tend to be a little bit more friendly uh, to the Gensler SEC administration, and some of the Republicans are a little bit less friendly. There was a really great, what Michael was alluding to before, is there's a really great question about whether or not a Pokemon is a security card, or is a Pokemon, uh, Pokemon card. Pokemon card Pokemon is a security. Card. Yeah. Because um, part of that was, you know, if I buy a Pokemon card, is that a security? Next question if I buy a tokenized Pokemon, is that a security? Wasn't able to answer that. Which is really interesting. I mean, yeah, the NFT, you know, if I'm being totally honest, I mean, crypto does, especially, you know, front ends and exchanges and stable coins and things like that, that does need regulation. And I'm usually on the side of like, yeah, I want to encourage innovation, but some amount of regulation here clearly makes sense. With NFTs, I, I, I'm scratching my head being, I really feel like they're flexing the definition of what a security is. It's tough for me to, there are some, there are some that should just be prosecuted as fraud because, but, but I, you know, calling an NFT a security doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, any, any other takeaways from the Gensler, Gensler hearing? I honestly just think it's the exact same story of every other time he's gone in front of Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, he has the same points the people who ask the same questions or people who ask questions, ask the same questions. Um, nobody gets anywhere. Um, yeah, it, it does feel kind of like, uh, we're at just, a an impasse and there's not really anything that can change at this point. 
other than regulation. And lo and behold, the people who are asking the questions have a couple of proposed bills, you know, that would change a lot of the the rules around how, you know, this, this process would work. Obviously very supportive of that. I agree. I think, you know, we're pro regulation, but we're pro the right regulation. And I think there's a huge difference there. Um, There definitely needs to be some controls and some things to change or people just entrepreneurs need to be able to know what to do. Um, you know, when we talk with companies that uh, are based in the U.S., it's like, what do we do? And we don't have any perspectives because nobody knows. Um, so I, I think that part is tough. But um, yeah, the the other thing that I'll say is, and this is not obviously from the um, the hearing itself, but it seems to be like there's a lot of movement uh, from the SEC on the ETF front. They've kind of processed a lot of paperwork. Um, they've delayed some decisions, uh, which sounds like the spot Bitcoin ETF is going to at least get delayed until, you know, January, probably March at this point. Um, but it looks like they're processing a lot of the ETH futures or combined ETH BTC futures ETFs. Mm, Um, maybe this is in lieu of, uh, or or in, uh, ahead of a potential government shutdown, which, you know, could happen in the next 48 hours. But I think, you know, it, it is interesting to see kind of, all of this perspective happening on the front, in the hearing, and then in the background, there's a lot of movement. I'm just looking at Eric Balkunas, who's, for all intents and purposes these days, the crypto ETF czar. And I, it looks like, to, to your point, Michael, they're they're trying to accelerate the, um, you know, the decision on this to before a, a potential government shutdown. And that what I'm looking at here from from Eric is that uh, the ETH futures ETF could be trading as early as Tuesday. So crazy, crazy. Yeah. I mean, who knows whether or not we get that, the, we were talking about this a little bit offline, but the question is, is this, is this a good thing? Should we be excited <laughs> about this? If you go and find the day that the Bitcoin futures ETF launched, it nearly top ticks the market. I actually remember, so love the folks at CME. They, they do a really good job in the space. And I do remember, I can't remember it was, uh, yeah, there's Bitcoin futures and they were launching something else. This was in 2021. It was another big product launch. And we're like, we're joking on a call with them. We're like, all right, guys, we're not going to repeat what happened last time. Right. And, and <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 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 Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not really an expert on the dynamics of futures ETFs and what that does to spot. I, I think that there is a a school of thought around there that that's not necessarily bullish for the spot price action. And it's kind of a combination of a carry trade that people can run where they short futures and long spot. It also just, in a sense, increases the supply. It's more paper claims. It's more ways to speculate on an asset and it's easier to go short. So I, there are lots of people that are on the other side of that and would take the opposite. I'm not an expert on this. I just, there are there is a group of people out there who think like that. I think empirically, if you looked at the, the launches of these products in the past in crypto, it has not been excellent for spot price action. But I think it's good over over a long time. It would be no. I'm Sorry, just saying, it, regardless of like, uh, just from an adoption or like a volume standpoint, it would be interesting to see, you know, how it ends up comparing to Bitcoin because I feel like today or, or their their equivalent Bitcoin product, because um, I feel like that is just a signal of like, you know, potentially how much more attention Ethereum has from that investor class than it did, you know, basically like before the last cycle. Um, so yeah, I don't. Again, I'm also not an expert on these ETH futures dynamics. Um, I don't know how 
you know, what that will do to price action or if it'll have any impact, but it will be interesting to see just like how many people are now looking at Ethereum, you know, on par with Bitcoin um, in terms of its importance. What, what would that data tell you? I, I, I'm just like scratching my head. Who right now is like trading an ETH futures ETF? I'm just trying, I'm just like scratching my head. I don't think it's, I don't think it's trading. I mean, so I I will tell you exactly who it is. Uh, It is literally my uncle who for the last two years has been asking me when he can buy ETH in his 401k. It's actually Yano's uncle too. Uh, There's always an uncle. Miles got a great parental crypto text. uh, No, it was incredible. It was like, holy shit. Have you heard about this thing, WorldCoin? This is going to change the world. (laughs) I guess I have. You too yes, can scan yeah, your eyeballs. Yeah, yeah. Celestia got a yeah. shout out in there, like the first yeah, modular, modular blockchain, blockchain coming live. Like, I was no, like, I'm proud of you, but I'll, I'll say yes. It's a, no- yeah, it's a knowledgeable mom. It's a proud, proud moment. I could see both sides of the argument for this ETH futures ETF. I mean, obviously, like the carry trade is you know, painstakingly simple. You buy spot, you stake it, you make 3 to 5%, and then you short the price risk with the futures. Pretty easy. So it does require you to buy spot, which, you know, there's that. Um, but I, I, I think that, you know, would obviously be the negative. The positive, I mean, sure, more attention, same level as Bitcoin, uh, you know, just more potential for our, our uncles to buy. Um, the other one that I, th- I find kind of interesting is what does this do to the SEC's uh, ambivalence around whether or not ETH is a security? Does this totally negate it does this basically say they're they're now uh, looking at eth as a non-security that that's kind of one of my questions around and i'm obviously not a securities lawyer but you know does this sort of implicitly say um you know that they have come to the realization that it's not um so i i think that could be kind of an interesting moment in time as well it's really hard. I have no idea. I For so long, I've just been operating on the assumption that it's not. And now they're questioning it again. It feels to me like they're trying to move the goalposts so far that we're like, whoa, whoa, and definitely not ETH is not a security. But I, I have no idea. I'm really just talking. Wait, I have no idea how these games are played. So one, one topic that I wanted to get your guys take on was we've got the Celestia or the Tia airdrop that got announced this week. And we talked about it a little bit on this show, but obviously Celestia, a project with, you know, a lot of a lot of great people, a lot of hype around it, definitely targeting, I would say, a pain point within sort of blockchain, uh, you know, set of duties, right? Data availability, I think, is going to become a much harder topic, and that's what they're optimized for. So, some details around the airdrop. Um, the total supply of the airdrop is one billion Tia at Genesis. Um, it's 8% inflation for the first year, decreasing 10% uh, per year until reaching an inflation floor of 1.5% annually. Um, the public allocation is 20%. So the test net is 7.4%. Futures initiative. Oh, wait, no, this is the whole. Yeah, sorry, this is the entire breakdown. So the public allocation is 20%. Uh, the futures initiative is 126 R&D and ecosystem is 268 Early backers, 197 Early backers seed. Okay, so actually a combined of about uh, 35%, 35%. I was going to say, they definitely sold more than that. Yeah, 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 about 35%. Uh, and the initial core contributors to the team, 17.6%. Um, and so, I, I mean, look, I, I guess it's it's interesting. I mean, I think this this 
has the potential to be, you know, a pretty big event. Vance would say it's uh, recapitalizing the DGENs uh, in a sense. Um, <laughs> I, I also think it's a very useful, like DA is a, and, and a lot of the ETH rollup ecosystem does depend on getting cheaper DA costs. Um, so yeah, I don't know what your guys, what your guys thoughts are here. One, like if you just look at the, the airdrop distribution, I think it reflects Celestia's at least like how they're thinking about their strategic positioning, right? They want to be completely ecosystem agnostic. They want to appeal to roll-up developers and, you know, push, basically make the market feel like you can be Ethereum aligned if you use ETH for settlement, but Celestia for DA still, right? Um, at the same time, they are a tendermint, you know, Cosmos chain. They are a Cosmos in the sense that they are like, have one single purpose to their chain and they're specializing to do that as well as possible. Um, and of course they're IBC enabled. So you can see like why you'd have stakers and IBC relayers and, uh, in that included in there. Um, I guess the other thing I would say is, you know, it, it will be interesting because it's unlike optimism or arbitrum, some of the other big launches, there's no, you know, degen way to farm this asset. Uh, and the only sort of like, there's going to be a lot less noise around what's considered like real traction versus I would say speculative traction, right? Because the only way you're actually, you know, these fundamentals are going to improve for Celestia is if rollups use them for settlement. And like, that's a high switching cost. That's not going to be, uh, you know, that's, that's quite a commitment. Right. And so I'm, it, it's great. I, I'm really excited because we'll be able to like, like, it's always nice when there's less noise around actually like, fundamentally what's happening here is it gaining traction and usage um and yeah i don't know you know where it's going to trade i i can tell you that it will trade on osmosis um at launch but uh and that's a lot of because of the ibc connection which is great um but yeah i think those are a couple couple quick takeaways we'll we'll, we'll see how much traction it gets we can finally start to see you know the the comparisons um and you know, one of the things I've been looking forward to, honestly, for years now, is everybody can pontificate on Twitter and have their own philosophical arguments, uh, but ultimately it comes down to traction and numbers. Uh, and so, uh, frankly, I'm just excited to see what those numbers. Me are. too. Like we have so all these roll-up frameworks. We've been talking about shared sequencers. We've been talking about alt DA solutions, and you know, we're actually going to go live pretty soon uh, for the most part, eigenlayer as well. And, and you can start, we'll start to see what's real exactly. and what's, what's, what was, you know, we got a little bit too hyped up about. Um, and ultimately it's like the developers will kind of answer that, right? With their choices. I don't know. I'm I'm pumped for that team. I, I hope it ends up working. I would be a proponent overall of reducing, reducing cost for apps, I think is the thing that we should be optimizing for. Um, so power to them. Exactly. The uh, the infrastructure build out has been nothing but impressive over the last few years. Mm -hmm. And I mean, once again, as we were talking about, you have this flavor, you have that flavor, you can do kind of you know mix and match, whatever you want. But choice is ultimately what I think will drive a lot of optionality for developers. And it's just going to build a diversity of different types of applications. It's wickedly difficult. It's, it's just so tough. I mean, in, in some cases, like I was talking to a a friend of mine on one of these share sequencer teams recently, and we were having uh, actually the exact same debate, Michael, that you posed, which is like, how many rollups are there going to be? And I, I think it 
matters an enormous amount. And it's kind of this unknowable thing, right? Because I guess in in the situation, again, if I was just sitting from the perspective of a shared sequencer, you know, if there are a couple big rollups, probably actually then it does make sense to decentralize and yeah, you have like a, sh- a set of shared sequencers, right? Because like there's enough economy sort of built on that that you do want to increase the moneyness of, of that asset. And it's an additional layer of security and all this stuff. But if there's you know a, hun- a thousand individual chains with a moderate amount of economic activity, I don't think you need to have a decentralized sequencer on all those. And, and, and how could you possibly, like we're all just sitting here guessing. So we're all like, all right, baby, this infrastructure is getting built out. But man, if you are in building out one of these sets of infrastructure, I mean, it's just tough. My heart goes out to you. It is, <laughs> it's brutal. It's very competitive. Um, and it's hard to know. It's just hard to know how this stuff's going to play out logically. But it can be highly totally. lucrative if it works out. Yeah, baby. It's hard. Yeah. yeah. You need to have a plan B, I think, if you're one of these players. Uh, like, okay things go this way that's this is how we're positioning but you know if if it doesn't if we turn out to be wrong like we can't be dead right we need to be able to like pivot quickly um and i think that that's what folks are thinking about right now and it's now like a little bit the app chain thesis is like kind of come back down to earth a little bit just a side question there miles do you think that there's now i mean one of the conversations that we would have in 2019 and 2020 was um what blockchain do we build on and then it was, okay, well, what infrastructure should we, we, we be using? And the level of platform risk that you took on in making that choice was gargantuan. Now, I, I don't find that it's that high or it's not as big as it once was. And I don't think it ever goes away. You're always, you know, if you build on the wrong operating system, like you're just not going to be able to access a certain amount of people. But I, you know, I'm old enough to remember when Mac yeah. didn't have all the fun games, whereas totally. Windows did. Um, and you know, I, I do think that that, you know, the emulators of the world are going to come together and, and make it really simple and simplified. Um, so you don't have that same platform risk, but like, where are I we feel on like that curve? It's kind of similar. Like I remember, you know, that saying like, you won't get fired for picking like X, Y, Z, like you won't get fired for going with an EVM single threaded, like roll up, right. The timing of like, but at the same time we're no one's like arguing that there aren't huge downsides to like solidity and the EVM. Um, I think we saw that with like curve, right? It, there, there are more secure languages. There are more performative languages and VMs. Um, the timing of when that like, you know, Lindy kind of tips, I, I just can't say for sure. I don't know. I've been wrong in the past. I thought I wouldn't have thought that EVMs are like still the like dominant, dominant option by now um if you asked me two years ago so yeah two two years well i mean two three, three four years, years ago it was like oh <laughs> we've got we've got uh we've got some big up-and-coming blockchains that are launching <laughs> yeah, that are gonna exactly. steal the show exactly and now but i will say the switching costs are a little or like the platform risk is a little bit lower um because you know let's say you're like yeah you know picking a couple different components you can switch out the da you can switch out the settlement you can switch out the vm pretty easily um right so yeah i think it'll be interesting to see like if this like OP super chain all makes decisions together, like when are they going to feel good enough to go say like, all right, now we can do like ZK or now we can do move or, you know, whatever sort of VM. Um, yeah, we'll see. It's tough. I remember listening to Antonio talk about this years ago. I Antonio Giuliano of DYDX, who I've always thought is a very long-term, pretty visionary founder. And 
you know, he's like, I think people overplay the role of distribution when you're picking an ecosystem and it really should be what is the ecosystem actually allow you to do from a product standpoint. And I'm with him in the long term, but man, it would suck to get the timing wrong on that. Like it, I, I, I really think that you're seeing that distribution matters quite a bit. And the reality is the most valuable customers for on-chain products are in the ETH ecosystem. And you see that with the early traction that the rollups are getting. Uh, it's just true. And there, this, is, this is the classic saying, right? it's like first time founders think about products, second time founders think about distribution. It's like a classic, yeah, yeah. classic mistake that everyone makes. And I don't know, it, there, another flipping that happened this week was base just flipped Solana in TBL. And I say that as a supporter of you know, Solana, but I mean, you, you can you can watch the the roll up thesis playing out in real time and it's distribution. And and I think it was still right to to focus on that for the time being. Totally agree. Friend text, right? Doesn't mean that'll be that way forever, but I think for now that was the right decision. But anyway, all right guys. This was a fun one. I think we can wrap it here.